Chapter 15, Part 2 of The Swiss Family Robinson. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Swiss Family Robinson by Johann R. Wies. Chapter 15, Part 2. Meanwhile, the other two boys returned to the farm by the rice fields, and there fell in with a flock of cranes, five or six of which they caught alive, among them two demoiselles, or Numidian cranes. These birds they shot at with arrows arranged in a skilful and original way, with loops of cord dipped in bird-lime attached to them, so that it often happened that the bird aimed at was entangled and brought down uninjured. The young hunters seemed to have lived very comfortably on peccary ham, cassava bread and fruit, and plenty of baked potatoes and milk. One trial of the pemmican was sufficient, and it was handed over to the dogs. Fritz, however, determined again to attempt the manufacture, knowing its value when properly prepared. After collecting a supply of rice and cotton, they took their way to Prospect Hill, and, said Fritz, as he afterward vividly described the dreadful scene there enacted, when we entered the pine wood we found it in possession of troops of monkeys, who resolved to make our passage through it as disagreeable as possible, for they howled and chattered at us like demons, pelting us as hard as they could with pine-cones. They became so unbearable that at last we fired a few shots right and left among them. Several bit the dust, the rest fled, and we continued our way in peace to Prospect Hill, but only to discover the havoc the wretches had made there. Would you believe it, father? The pleasant cottage had been overrun and ruined by apes, just as woodland last summer. The most dreadful dirt and disorder met our eyes wherever we turned, and we had hard work to make the place fit for human habitation, and even then we preferred the tent. I felt quite at a loss how to guard the farm for the future, but seeing a bottle of the poisonous gum of the euphorbia in the tool-chest, I devised a plan for the destruction of the apes, which succeeded beyond my expectations. I mixed poison with milk, bruised millet, and anything I thought the monkeys would eat, and put it in coconut shells, which I hung about in the trees, high enough to be out of reach of our own animals. The evening was calm and lovely, the sea murmured in the distance, and the rising moon shed a beauty over the landscape which we seemed never before to have so admired and enjoyed. The summer night closed around us in all its solemn stillness, and our deepest feelings were touched, when suddenly the spell was broken by an outburst of the most hideous and discordant noises. As by one consent, every beast of the forest seemed to arise from its den and utter its wild nocturnal cry. Snorting, snarling, and shrieking filled the wood beneath us. From the hills echoed the mournful howl of the jackals, answered by fangs in the yard, who was backed up by the barking and yelping of his friends, Floss and Bruno. Far away beyond the rocky fastnesses of the gap sounded unearthly hollow snortings and neighings, reminding one of the strange cry of the hippopotamus. Above these, occasional deep, majestic roaring made our hearts quail with the conviction that we heard the voices of lions and elephants. Overawed and silent, we retired to rest, 
hoping to forget in sleep the terrors of the midnight forest, but ere long the most fearful cries in the adjoining woods gave notice that the apes were beginning to suffer from the poisoned repast prepared for them. As our dogs could not remain silent amid the uproar and din, we had not a wink of sleep until the morning. It was late, therefore, when we rose, and looked on the awful spectacle presented by the multitude of dead monkeys and baboons, thickly strewn under the trees round the farm. I shall not tell you how many there were. I can only say I wished I had not found the poison, and we made all haste to clear away the dead bodies and the dangerous food, burying some deep in the earth, and carrying the rest to the shore, we pitched them over the rocks into the sea. That day we travelled on to the gap. The same evening that the boys reached the rocky pass, a messenger pigeon arrived at Rockburg, bearing a note which concluded in the following words. The barricade at the gap broken down. Everything laid waste as far as the sugar-break, where the hut is knocked to pieces, and the fields trampled over by huge footmarks. Come to us, father. We are safe, but feel we are no match for this unknown danger. I lost not an instant, but saddled swift, late as it was, in order to ride to the assistance of our boys, desiring Ernest to prepare the small cart and follow me with his mother at daybreak, bringing everything we should require for camping out for some days. The bright moonlight favoured my journey, and my arrival at the gap surprised and delighted the boys, who did not expect me till the next day. Early on the following morning I inspected the footprints and ravages of the great unknown. The canebrake had, without doubt, been visited by an elephant. That great animal alone could have left such traces, and committed such fearful ravages. Thick posts in the barricade were snapped across like reeds. The trees in the vicinity, where we planned to build a cool summer-house, were stripped of leaves and branches to a great height, but the worst mischief was done among the young sugar-cane plants, which were all either devoured or trampled down and destroyed. It seemed to me that not one elephant, but a troop, must have invaded our grounds. The tracks were very numerous, and the footprints of various sizes, but, to my satisfaction, I saw that they could be traced not only from the gap, but back to it in evidently equal numbers." We did not therefore suppose that the mighty animals remained hidden in the woods of our territory, but concluded that, after this freebooting incursion, they had withdrawn to their native wilds, where, by greatly increasing the strength of our ramparts, we hoped henceforth to oblige them to remain. In what manner to effect this we laid many plans, during the night of my arrival, when, sitting by an enormous watch-fire, I chatted with my boys, and heard details of their numerous adventures, so interesting for them to relate, and for me to hear, that every one was more disposed to act sentinel than retire to sleep. The mother and Ernest arrived next day, and she rejoiced to find all well, making light of trodden fields and trampled sugar-canes, since her sons were sound in life and limb. A systematic scheme of defence was now elaborated, and the erection of the barricade occupied us for at least a month, as it was to be a firm and durable building, proof against all invasion. As our little tent was unsuited to a long residence of this sort, I adopted Fritz's idea of a Kamchatkan dwelling. 
and to his great delight forthwith carried it out. Instead of planting four posts, on which to place a platform, we chose four trees of equal size, which, in a very suitable place, grew exactly in a square, twelve or fourteen feet apart. Between these, at about twenty feet from the ground, we laid a flooring of beams and bamboo, smoothly and strongly planked. From this rose, on all four sides, walls of cane. The frame of the roof was covered so effectually by large pieces of bark that no rain could penetrate. The staircase to this tree cottage was simply a board plank with bars nailed across it for steps. The flooring projected like a balcony in front of the entrance door, and underneath, on the ground, we fitted up sheds for cattle and fowls. Various ornaments in Chinese or Japanese style were added to the roof and eaves, and a most convenient, cool, and picturesque cottage, overhung and adorned by the graceful foliage of the trees, was the result of our ingenuity. I was pleased to find that the various birds taken by the boys during this excursion seemed likely to thrive. They were the first inmates of the new sheds, and even the black swans and cranes soon became tame and sociable. Constantly roaming through the woods, the children often made new discoveries. Fritz brought one day, after an excursion to the opposite side of the stream beyond the gap, a cluster of bananas, and also of cacao beans, from which chocolate is made. The banana, although valuable and nourishing food for the natives of the tropical countries where it grows, is not generally liked by Europeans, and probably this variety was even inferior to many others, for we found the fruit much like rotten pears, and almost uneatable. The cacao seeds tasted exceedingly bitter, and it seemed wonderful that by preparation they should produce anything so delicious as chocolate. My wife, who now fancied no manufacture beyond my skill, begged for plants, seeds, or cuttings to propagate in her nursery garden, already fancying herself in the enjoyment of chocolate for breakfast, and I promised to make a cacao plantation near home. "'Let me have bananas also,' said she, "'for we may acquire a taste for that celebrated fruit, and at all events I am sure I can make it into an excellent preserve.' The day before our return to Rockburg, Fritz went again to the inland region beyond the river to obtain a large supply of young banana plants and the cacao fruit. He took the kayak and a bundle of reeds to float behind him as a raft, to carry the fruit, plants, and anything else he might wish to bring back. On the evening he made his appearance, coming swiftly downstream. His brothers rushed to meet him, each eager to see and help to land his cargo. Ernest and Fritz were quickly running up the bank, with arms full of plants, branches, and fruits, when Fritz handed to Jack a dripping wet bag, which he had brought along partly under water. A curious pattering noise proceeded from this bag, but they kept the contents a secret for the present, Jack running with it behind a bush before peeping in, and I could just hear him exclaim, "'Hullo! I say, what monsters they are! It's enough to make a fellow's flesh creep to look at them!' With that he hastily shut up the bag and put it away safely out of sight in water. Securing the kayak, Fritz sprang toward us, his handsome face radiant with pleasure, as he exhibited a beautiful waterfowl. Its plumage was rich purple, changing on the back to dark green. 
the legs, feet, and a mark above the bill, bright red. This lovely bird I concluded to be the sultan cock described by Buffon, and as it was gentle, we gladly received it among our domestic pets. Fritz gave a stirring account of his exploring trip, having made his way far up the river, between fertile plains and majestic forests of lofty trees, where the cries of vast numbers of birds, parrots, peacocks, guinea-fowls, and hundreds unknown to him, quite bewildered and made him feel giddy. "'It was in the buffalo swamp,' continued he, "'that I saw the splendid birds you call sultan-cocks, "'and I set my heart on catching one alive, "'which, as they seemed to have little fear of my approach, "'I managed by means of a wire snare. "'Farther on I saw a grove of mimosa-trees, "'among which huge dark masses were moving in a deliberate way. "'Guess what they were?' "'Savages?' asked Franz timidly. "'Black bears, I bet,' cried Jack. "'Your words suggest to my mind the manner and appearance of elephants,' said Ernest. "'Right you are, Professor,' exclaimed Fritz gaily, the words producing quite a sensation on the whole attentive family. "'From fifteen to twenty elephants were feeding peacefully on the leafy boughs, tearing down branches with their trunks, and shoving them into their mouths with one jerk, or bathing in the deep waters of the marsh for refreshment in the great heat.' "'You cannot imagine the wild grandeur of the scene. "'The river being very broad, I felt safe from wild animals, "'and more than once saw splendid jaguars crouched on the banks, "'their glossy skin glancing in the sunlight. "'While considering if it would be simply foolhardy "'to try a shot at one of these creatures, "'I was suddenly convinced that discretion is the better part of valour, "'and, urging my canoe into the centre current, made a rapid retreat down the river. For just before me, in the calm, deep water of a sheltered bay, where I was quietly floating, there arose a violent, boiling, bubbling commotion, and for an instant I thought a hot spring was going to burst forth. Instead of that, uprose the hideous head and gaping jaws of a hippopotamus, who, with a hoarse, terrific snort, seemed about to attack me. I can tell you I did not wait to see the rest of him, a glimpse of his enormous mouth and its array of white gleaming tusks was quite enough. Right about face, said I to myself, and shot down the stream like an arrow, never pausing till a bend in the river brought me within sight of the gap, where I once more felt safe, and joyfully made my way back to you all. This narrative was of thrilling interest to us, proving the existence of tribes of the most formidable animals beyond the rocky barrier which defended, in so providential a manner, the small and fertile territory on which our lot was cast. During the absence of the adventurer we had been busily engaged in making preparations for our departure, and everything was packed up and ready by the morning after his return. After some hesitation I yielded to his great wish, which was to return by sea in his kayak round Cape Disappointment, and so meet us at Rockburg. He was much interested in examining the outlines of the coast and the rugged precipices of the Cape. These were tenanted by vast flocks of sea-fowl and birds of prey, while many varieties of shrubs and plants, hitherto unknown to us, grew in the clefts and crevices of the rocks, some of them diffusing a strong aromatic odour. 
Among the specimens he brought I recognized the caper plant, and with still greater pleasure a shrub which was, I felt sure, the tea plant of China. It bore very pretty white flowers, and the leaves resembled myrtle. Our land journey was effected without accident or adventure of any kind. Jack, mounted as usual on Hurry, the ostrich, carried the mysterious wet bag very carefully slung at his side, and when near home started off at a prodigious rate in advance of us. He let fall the drawbridge, and we saw no more of him until, on reaching Rockburg, he appeared leisurely returning from the swamp, where apparently he had gone to deposit his moist secret, as Franz called it. We were all glad to take up our quarters once more in our large and convenient dwelling, and my first business was to provide for the great number of birds we now had on our hands, by establishing them in suitable localities, it being impossible to maintain them all in the poultry-yard. Some were, therefore, taken to the islands, and the black swans, the heron, the graceful demoiselle cranes, and our latest acquisition, the splendid sultan-cock, soon became perfectly at home in the swamp, greatly adding to the interest of the neighborhood of Safety Bay. The old bustards were the tamest of all our feathered pets, and never more so than at meal-times. They were unfailing in their attendance when we dined or supped in the open air. Toward evening, as we sat in the veranda listening to Fritz's account of his trip round the Cape, an extraordinary hollow roaring noise sounded from the swamp, not unlike the angry bellowing of a bull. The dogs barked, and the family rose in excitement, but I remarked a look of quiet humor in Fritz's eye, as he stood leaning against one of the veranda pillars, watching Jack, who, in some confusion, started off toward the marsh. "'Come back, you silly boy!' cried his mother. "'The child has not so much as a pistol, and is rushing off alone to face he knows not what.' "'Perhaps,' said I, looking at Fritz, "'this is not a case requiring the use of firearms. It may be only the booming of a bittern which we hear.' "'You need not be uneasy, mother,' said Fritz. "'Jack knows what he is about. Only this charming serenade took him by surprise.' and I fancy he will have to exhibit his treasures before they reach perfection. Yes, here he comes. Lugging his moist secret along with him, Jack, flushed and breathless, came up to us, exclaiming, "'They were to grow as big as rabbits before you saw them. Such a shame! I never thought they would kick up a row like that. Now for it!' And he turned out the bag. "'This is grace, and this is beauty!' Two immense frogs rolled clumsily on the ground, and, recovering their feet, sat squat before us, swelling and puffing with a ludicrous air of insulted dignity, while peals of laughter greeted them on all sides. "'Ladies and gentlemen, these are two very handsome young specimens of the famous African bullfrog,' said Jack, pretending to be offended at the mingled disgust and amusement occasioned by their appearance." They are but half-grown, and I hoped to maintain them in seclusion until they reached full size, when I would have introduced them with proper éclat. But since their talent for music has brought them precociously into public notice, I must beg for your kind and indulgent patronage, and leave to take them back to the swamp. Great clapping of hands followed Jack's speech. Grace and beauty were examined, 
and commented on with much interest, and voted decidedly handsome in their way. Their general color was greenish-brown, mottled and spotted with reddish-brown and yellow, the sides green and black, the underpart yellow, mottled with orange. The eyes were positively beautiful, of a rich chestnut hue, covered with golden-white dots, which shone with a metallic luster. The skin of the body was puckered into longitudinal folds. By general consent they were remanded to the swamp. Shortly after our return to Rockburg, my wife drew my attention to the somewhat neglected state of our dear old summer residence at Falconhurst, begging me to devote some time to its restoration and embellishment. This I most willingly undertook, and we removed thither, as soon as the boys had completed the arrangement of the artificial salt-lick to their satisfaction. At Falconhurst things were quickly in good order, and we made a great improvement by completing the broad terrace, supported on the arching roots of the trees, it was better floored, and rustic pillars and trellis-work sustained a bark-roof, which afforded a pleasant shade. After this was done, I was compelled to consent to a plan long cherished by Fritz, who wished to construct a watch-tower and mount a gun on Shark Island. After great exertion, both mental and bodily, this piece of military engineering was completed, and a flagstaff erected, on which the guard at this outpost could run up a white flag to signal the approach of anything harmless from the sea, while a red flag would be shown on the least appearance of danger. To celebrate the completion of this great work, which occupied us during two months, we hoisted the white flag and fired a salute of six guns. End of chapter 15, part 2. Read on July 31, 2009, in San Diego, California.